Good morning. It's always uh, a privilege to bring the Word of God uh, to you uh, these Sunday mornings. Uh, as always, I always want to thank the session for allowing me the opportunity to preach. Um, it is one of my favorite parts of my job to be able to dig into the Word um, and be able to hopefully craft something um, that, um, one, it impacts my life every week. Uh, sometimes I don't like it um, just because it's convicting, um, but I hope it's a joy for you. Um, there's a, there's a story one comedian tells about how we've become an individualistic society. Don't worry, I'm not doing an English accent this week with a comedian. <laughs> um, and how we've lost the ability of neighboring over the past 30 years. He recounts a time when he was younger and family friends dropped in. The doorbell rang. The parents opened the door to find their friends waiting there. The children, him and his two siblings, came running to, running to the door and they greeted their guests. And then the father finally said, what are you doing here? And they said, we were in the neighborhood, so we thought we would drop in. An unheard of comment nowadays, right? And so not, uh, not only does the father invite them in, they go into the kitchen and the mom has a special cake that is waiting just in case family friends drop in. And they sit around and they talk for hours and finally the couple leaves and everyone comments about how nice it was that they swung by. In today's world, that is very different. When the doorbell rings, everyone is put on red alert. <laughs> the captain of the family typically says, everyone down, mute the television, make sure that they can't see us from the windows. And then he's doing roll call around, right? To make sure that no one's expecting anybody. Corey, do you have anybody swinging by? Piper, do you have anybody swinging by? Eva, do you have anybody swinging by? And once roll call's made, he makes sure everyone is silent, everyone is dropped down, everyone is chill, so that the person at the front door thinks that no one's home and they begin to move away. And if you have what we have in our house, known as a straggler, come marching down the stairs because he doesn't know how to temper his feet yet, Someone's got to tackle him and cover his mouth to make sure that he's in on it too. Nowadays, if someone drops in, they literally have to call us from the road, right? And be like, we've arrived. Ken, is it, is it safe to approach? We've brought the cake. We don't know how to drop in anymore. In America, you know this, one of the deities of choice is individualism. Community has become an afterthought to the point where it's become the American stereotype, right? People don't know how to communicate anymore. People don't know how to disagree anymore. People don't know how to relate anymore. People don't know how to lose anymore. People don't know how to be bored anymore. People don't know how to reconcile anymore. People don't know how to die to self anymore. I mean, those are topics on the news like every week, right? Why? Because no one's asked them to. And if you did, ironically, another American stereotype, you might offend them. Society is preoccupied with more self-identity, more self-esteem, more self-promotion. And ironically, we've sacrificed self on the altar of self by denying what we were made for. We were made for community, for one anothering, for being 
different parts of a unified body. It's how we were created to reflect a Trinitarian God that he himself is somehow in community too. But we have drifted apart. And while we long for community, a significant number of us feel alone. According to a recent Cygnus study that came out in May, people are more lonely now than they've ever been before. And if you read the study, the, study, the, the statistics are startling. We know this because we live in Frisco, right? Or at least around here. Even in the seven years I've been here, people have built higher fences, automated more services, and spent more time making sure we are comfortable with being taken care of. And if you have kids, we do this even more in their lives. We build up fences to make sure our children are comfortable, make sure that their every supposed need is met, and work to remove every potential conflict, thanking that conflict is actually bad for our children when all the psych data tells us otherwise. Conflict's good for our children. It can actually be great for our children if it's used well. But again, loneliness isn't, isn't a new thing. It's not like, well, we're in America, now we're lonely. It has affected the universal church since the beginning. It's just highlighted in our American age. And this week, I would like to continue to do what Patrick started last week, which is to provoke us to gospel ministry, to provoke you to examine how the gospel can apply to neighboring. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 14, 12 through 24. It's on page 874 if you're using the Pew Bible. It's actually, you know, ready right for you. It's at the top left corner. You can't miss it. It's literally the first verse. Here Jesus is having a meal with a group of Pharisees. They have already tested him by bringing in a man with dropsy, and Jesus has healed the man on the Sabbath, which has made the Pharisees rather uncomfortable. And then he tell, told them about how people fight for social, social position. And now he tells another parable involving a man who gives a great banquet. So let's look at the text and see what it has to say for us. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those, one of the Pharisees who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this is beginning where we're going to start today. Verse 16, where we're really going to dig in. But he said to him, Jesus, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray together. Father, 
I do not love my neighbor well. I make excuses to interact with him, just as they probably make excuses to interact with me. But Father, you made no excuse. You had a plan to reach me and my neighbor, and it involved your son who spoke this parable. Father, may we hear his words today, and may we remember his words throughout this week. Amen. When the leadership of the church got together to come up with a campaign slogan for this um, capital campaign, we knew we had to be deliberate, right? You got you to choose your slogan intentionally. And while, yes, the capital campaign's physical goal is a new church building, it is not the ultimate aim. So slogans like cornerstone or build a house, open the doors, they were never in the cards for us. Our goal is the great commandment, which is found in Matthew 22 or Mark 12. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same reason where we've simplified the church motto. Because one, most of us can remember the church motto on every, any given weekend, so we simplified it because we wanted to reflect that same idea in the great com, uh, commandment, to know Christ and to make him known, which is your first fill in the blank, just in case you're a learner who needs to write it down. Now you've got it. And which is, this is the same aim as the capital campaign, glorifying God and loving our neighbors. We want more people around the table because we believe God wants more people around the table. Very simple. Um, and while in the Reformed community, we very, care, very much care about the first part of the great commandment, I think we neglect the second. Not so much as that we don't care about the second part, which is to love your neighbor. But I think in our culture, which has become so individualistic, neighboring has become a lost art. You literally have to go against the grain to do it. And that's what we see in the story today. We see two different types of people. We see those that don't want a neighbor, and we see a, um, a rich man who is throwing a banquet that does. And to steal the two points today, I pulled from a guy named Mr. Rogers. Maybe some of you have caught his television show at some point. Um, who still probably paints the best picture of what community is to look like even today. The first point is, don't you be my neighbor. The first couple verses set up the parable. Jesus instructs the Pharisees, the Pharisees to invite those that cannot repay. However, I want to concentrate most of our time on the parable itself. And to understand the parable, you've got to understand a little bit about first century social customs um, in Judaism. Luckily, we have Jewish historians, so we know them. Uh, they've written about them, so we have clues. First, as the story states, there was an initial invitation sent out. The servant in verse 17 is going to those who have already been invited. Think about it. This makes sense in that culture. It takes a while to prepare a banquet, right? It takes a while. Think about your wedding day when a bride and groom send out stuff for their rehearsal dinner and they send out stuff for the reception. They want a head count so they know how many mouths to feed. It's important. Who's ever thrown the banquet? How many, you know, racks of ribs or whatever? They probably didn't do racks of ribs back then, but they probably did lamb or something like that. Um, how many do I got to throw on the grill to make sure that everyone's fed? 
but they're not merely sent out for the person holding the banquet. The guests need to gauge their position. Is it, is it worth their time to attend this banquet? Will it help their political standing? Will it mean I have to repay this person and invite them to my banquet? Where will I sit at the table compared to others? And most importantly, who has been invited that I cannot be seen with? What wretch might show up at the party that would do harm to my name? Remember, sharing a table with somebody makes you guilty by association in that culture. That's why the Pharisees threw a fit when Jesus hung out with the sinners, as they called him, and the tax collectors, and they even went as far as to call him a drunk. Why? Because the people he was hanging out with were drunk. Guilty by association. So let's make it personal. Who would you not want at a party that you are attending? Who would make you reconsider attending the party or the banquet if you knew who else was also on the guest list? So the assumption in the story is that all the people he sent invitations to had responded with a yes. Hence why the servant goes out to tell them that the banquet is ready. The food is almost done. We're almost done with the appetizers. The the drinks are all prepped. We have all the tables set. They should come now. It's the appointed time. But here comes the excuse list. Here comes the don't you be my neighbor. The first person says, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. Please excuse me. Again, little clues, banquets are typically thrown in the evening, so he's literally leaving to go out to see this field around dusk. Commentator Kenneth Bailey says, this would be similar to saying, I have just bought a house over the phone, and I must go look at it now and see the neighborhood. No one does this. No one. Especially before Zillow. Okay? Even if you've got a great realtor like Todd. Okay? At least now, there's an app for buying property. Back then, at the end of the day, how on earth are you going to best inspect your land? It is the first time you've seen it. Anyone hearing this excuse at the dinner party would see right through it. And they will see right through the niceties too. I mean, the first person does ask, please be excused. Please have me excused. And that's... And that's similar to a southern woman saying, I'll bless your heart. It's a backhanded nicety. The second person does one even better. I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Kenneth Bailey says this is similar to someone calling their wife, canceling dinner because they have just bought a used car over the phone and are now going to the used car lot to see what kind it is, how old it is, and whether or not it will start. But again, at least he said, please. The third person says, I have married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. My sinful nature wanted to say this was a good excuse. (laughs) 
right? I wanted to score points with my wife, right? And this is probably the one I would use if any of you called me up and invited me to a banquet because for the most of you, I like her more than I like you. This is a slap in the face, though, to the rich man who is throwing the banquet. He doesn't even ask to be excused. He just says, no. Have you seen my wife? You might not want to come to the banquet either. It seems as if the initial guest list has conspired to shame the host, and they have used their best excuses to do so. And while I don't believe we conspire against the host of glory, even though our hearts could probably make a case, we do make excuses when it comes to making a seat at the table. We make excuses for involving ourselves in the life of the church. We make excuses for sharing our faith. And they fall on very similar lines of these three don't-you-be-my-neighbor candidates. The first person is all about social standing, right? Land acquisition would increase someone's value in the community. Or what decisions do we not make to better our social standing? To fit in with our friends and neighbors. To be seen as cool. To be seen as put together. We're that put together family. To be sane or to make sure that we're not. The majority of the decisions we make in life have a lot to do with how other people see those decisions. We, buy, we are, by our very nature, people pleasers. We are, by our very nature, people pleasers. So when it comes to our own standing with our friends versus our standing before the Lord, well, I know how I often land on the wrong side of that faulty position. Given the chance to know the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, versus seeking personal Cain, whom do I regularly choose? I mean, I'm a professional Christian, right? Y'all pay me to do this. And I still have to remind myself every day that it's not about pleasing you, but it is about honoring God. The second person in the text is making a business deal. More oxen, would be good for work. However, in the story, he doesn't need to go and do this right now. He could wait until later to see the oxen. There's nothing stopping him. But it is on his mind. And well, for being honest, the banquet is just not that important. It is so easy to put work of our own kingdom before the work of the king. And many times we don't even consider God when making our life decisions. We don't. We figure God is along for the ride in our life. We make cross-country moves for work without considering where we grow in Christ. And provoking others to the gospel ministry is honestly probably the last thing on, I know it many times is the last thing on my mind. Because I don't make time. Notice how I didn't say I don't have time. I think we all have time. But we can make an excuse list like the men in the story because at the end of the day, it just isn't important to us. There's a phrase, a man too busy to pray is busier than God wants him to be. And even as someone who works in the church, I am prone to work before, I am prone to put work before my relationship with him daily. And the last person makes an excuse using his family, right? Which sounds really sweet, right? Honey, I want to spend more time with you. But in this parable, the banquet is hosted by the Lord of Lords, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Husbands, if you want to love your wives wives well, 
you would do well to secure your place before the king. Wives, if you want to love your husbands well, you would do best to allow him to worship before his feet. But we use the excuse of family all the time. And we tend to excuse family all the time too to avoid conflict. And then we call it love. Look, I have to be, I have to be very careful how I put this, okay? Um, but I say it because I love this church family and I love your children. Look, I've been serving in youth ministry since I was 18 on a dare. That's another story for another time. Before then, in high school, I served on an outreach um, group, um, which saw dozens of kids become new believers, students become new believers, um, and begin to attend church and follow Jesus. I've literally been in ministry for half my life now. So I feel like I got a good picture. So hear me when I say this, because Patrick's talk had me thinking about this all week. Well, sermon last week. Youth ministry will not save your kids. I think it's a good thing. But the former students I have seen keep the faith versus those who I've seen walk away have have something in common. And those students who have stayed in church had an outlet for provoking others to gospel ministry, even as teenagers. They had an outlet to provoking others to gospel ministry, even as teenagers. They had a place to encourage others, not just be encouraged. Unfortunately, I don't think that's enough, but they had a place to encourage others And the ones that stayed had a natural outlet to work out their salvation with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They had an outlet to be the hands and feet of Christ. They had an outlet to die to self. Essentially, they had an outlet to look like the Christians Paul describes in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Bearing with one another, provoking one another, and forgiving one another. They had an outlet to do those things. Beloved, do you have an outlet to provoke others to gospel ministry? Do you have an outlet to provoke others to gospel ministry? Fathers, do you have an outlet to provoke your family to gospel ministry? Mothers, do you have an outlet to provoke others to gospel ministry? Parents, are you finding an outlet for your children to learn what it is like to live like a Christian and encourage them to do the same? Or do you just have excuses? That one hit me hard this week. I didn't like that one. I need to not just tell Stephen how to love his God and love his neighbor. I must provide him opportunities to do so intentionally. Which leads me to my second point. Won't you be my neighbor? See, when God says he's throwing a party, God's going to throw a party. He's going to do it. Whether we like, whether we think we're too good for the party or whether... We, we want to come. The servant comes back to the host and delivers the news. He meet, the, the, the host meets him with anger, but not without a plan. He sends the servant right back out and tells him to invite the whole city, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. While he spent the last, well, we spent the last couple minutes looking at the way we can act like the elite who deny the invitation of the king in the story, the people of God in this story are these people. Beloved, and if you are in Christ, this is you. 
the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. That's you. Scripture tells us that we were dead in our sins. We were poor and crippled and blind and lame when it came to dealing with the sin issue. We were without hope. We were without a seat at the table. But suddenly we're made alive in Christ. And not only that, we are invited to the banquet. And in that culture, that means that we take on the social standing of the host. We are seen as someone who is worthy to be at the banquet of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Not because of anything we did, but because the host deemed us worthy to enter their home by invitation. And God takes it a step further. He just doesn't say, won't you be my neighbor? He says, won't you be mine? There was a YouTube video. Killed. Oh, it broke me this week. Some of you saw it. It was with the little girl. Um, they announced that she was getting adopted, right? Many of you saw that. It got tons of views on Good Morning America this week. Look it up on Google this afternoon if you haven't. Especially, make sure you got T-nex, like Kleenex is T-nex. Kleenex is next to you. It'll wreck you. But there's this moment where she's just opened all her gifts. And they say, we got one last gift for you, honey. And she's clearly being fostered by this parent, right? She opens the gift. They take out the wrapping. He says, be very careful with the frame. And she flips the frame around and she says, I'm going to be adopted. And she loses it. We're not just neighbors. We're children of the king. We're his. How beautiful. John Piper recently ended a conference with new verses he has written on great is thy faithfulness. And they have been the cry of my heart this past month. And I would like to read them to you. We're going to sing them here in a second. So you could, if you want to follow along in your bulletin, they are verses two and three. I could not love thee so blind and unfeeling. Covenant promises fell not to me. Then without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. I have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom or power to employ. Yet in thy mercy, how pleasing thou finds me. This is thy pleasure, and thou art my joy. God has made a seat at his table for us who we have nothing to offer. We were dead in our sins, who were blind to the need of our Jesus, who could not help ourselves. He invited us to his banquet. He put our name on the guest list, our name on the place card, written in his blood, purchased at great cost for his glory and for our joy. 1 Peter 2 tells us, You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a special possession. Once you were not the people of God, but now you are the people of God. It is when we see ourselves as the poor in spirit who get a place at the table of the king that the excuse lists that we make from the first point melt away. It is when we read that we have nothing to offer, but everything to receive, and believe that, that we can fully grip the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That making a seat at the table becomes second nature. 
with grasping how you have a seat yourself. Look, I don't think it's a coincidence that the savior of the universe was a carpenter, right? The guy was literally in the table-making business. And I think he has made the table and he has called us to fill it. That's what it says in this passage. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And that's the end of the parable. The next commandment is directed at the Pharisees there. He leaves the story open-ended. He says, the work is not done. There's a party coming, and I want you there. And I want your neighbors there. And I want the people that you love there. And I want the people that you don't like there too. I want you to be their neighbor. The capital campaign slogan is, make a seat at the table. And yes, we are calling to make a seat at the Lord's table. But that is not the only table we were talking about when we came up with that slogan. If we do not make a seat at the table for people in our homes, but instead make excuses, then this will be very uncomfortable for them. If we're serious about evangelism, if we're serious about the great commandment, then the avenue for the gospel will be propelled to our community who is lonely as we allow people to drop into our homes when we don't duck when the doorbell rings, when we begin to communicate with our neighbors and the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame that have nothing to offer us in return for our hospitality, then we will begin to provoke others to gospel ministry. My challenge for you today is to find two hours this month, two hours, and invite someone over who's never been through the front doors of your home before. Tell them they're not allowed to bring anything, to come as they are. If they're your VIPs, even better, right? But I'm asking for two hours. If you want to be holy, you can make it three, because that's the Lord's number, right? Two is all I'm asking for. For the Lord commands us in this passage, it's at the bottom of your notes, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Will you ask the question, won't you be my neighbor? So we as a church can be a place for community. I would like to end today's sermon with what I really believe is an echo of this parable that is proclaimed in the last book of scripture. It's one of my favorite passages. This passage we examine today makes me long to hear the voices of the multitude of servants who will one day call in Revelation 19. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, today we praise you with a whole heart 
We will tell of your marvelous works. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will sing praises to your name. We cry out with a loud voice, great is thy faithfulness. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is your mercy towards those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, you have removed our transgressions. Thank you for being a father and calling us your children. Thank you for, your love, for loving us unconditionally. That Thank you for creating us for your good pleasure. Father, you have asked us to continue to love one another, for love comes from you. Anyone who loves is your child and knows you. And those who do not love do not know you, for you are love. You have shown how much you loved us by sending your one and only son, Jesus, into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This real love, not that we loved you, but you love us and sent your son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for ours. We're not worthy, yet you made us worthy to love and know you. Thank you. Today we confess that we will love you with all our hearts and souls and strengths and mind. And we will love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Amen.